I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 51, Stacy's ex-best friend. I forgot that was the title and when I was reading it, now I'm like, oh, I guess the plot is built into the title. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty good one sentence summary on its own. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Should we just all say ours at the same time? Yeah. Do you think it's the same? Yeah. Let's yeah. try. Okay, ready? On the okay. One, two, three. Slaves a bit. <laughs> that was basically the same. Okay, wait. I couldn't hear any of them. What was yours, Emily? I said Stacy dumps Lane. Okay. What did you say, Anne? Lane's a bitch. <laughs> okay. And I and I divide that's interesting because Emily blames Stacy. <laughs> And Anne blames Lane. And I, of course, am dialectical about it and say, Stacy and Lane break up. Um, so look, I don't blame Stacy. I think Stacy did the right thing. Fair enough. Okay. Lane needed to be dumped. Right. But you give you give Stacy the agency. Yes, yeah, Stacy's like, the agent. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, although, like, what the fuck is Lane gonna reply to her letter? Are we ever gonna learn that? You know, I bet we will. We still have 80 in like 80 25 books? books. Yeah, probably. Jesus Christ. We'll still be eighth grade. Well, I guess we should back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. (laughs) I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. (laughs) Wow, sassy today. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Should I say it like Emily, my thing? Do it. Yeah. I'm Anna Chikawa, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. <laughs> That's how Christy sounds. <laughs> Christy's like, Lane, you're a bitch. <laughs> I mean, basically, right? If these if these books were written for a slightly older audience, Christy would have full on said, Lane, you're a bitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lane, um, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Uh, although whenever we say that, I think about how weird it would be if somebody just started with like episode 51, Stacy's ex-best friend. <laughs> but I guess you don't know how people yeah. listen to podcasts. It's true. It's true. People. I listen to ones out. in the middle all the time. OK. All right. Live your life. Well, I've heard you're supposed to listen to the newest one and then start from the beginning and go forward. Mm. But, you know, so that's true. Fair enough. Also, you can rate and review us. It helps people find the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, you can drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. And we have two more new patrons to thank this week, everybody. So pizza toast to Elizabeth Clark and Maya Rook. Woohoo! Thank you. Pizza toast. That hits us at 50 patrons, which is very exciting. Um, so mm-hmm. if you join us on Patreon, you can get bonus content. We have a bunch of extra episodes there and we have three different levels um, that you can choose from to support us. So the pizza toast is only $3 a month. You can get a kid kit for $6 a month and the super special level is $9 a month. So our current bonus episode is us discussing the pilot of the original Gossip Girl. Um, you can imagine that 
I had some. Guess opinions. how far I've gotten in season one since oh, we watched, since the we watched that. Uh, you completed it. <laughs> Almost. I have like three episodes left. Is it a 22 episode season or 13? I'm assuming it's a long season. It's long. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, there's a, it's a show with a lot of episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if they managed to make Chuck likable, I would assume it would have to be a lot of episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you can listen for They've more on that. They've not started that yet. <laughs> <laughs> you can listen for more on that on Patreon. Right now, if you're a patron, you can vote on what we're going to discuss next. And we're choosing between four wild premise 80s sitcoms, I think none of which Emily has seen. Small Wonder is currently in the lead, Anne, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Do you know anything about Small Wonder, Emily? I do not, know. G- guess from the title what, what it is. A short person with big dreams. <laughs> that's a good tagline. That is not what it's about. We'll leave it there for oh. now. <laughs> I like that Emily's going to maybe eventually have to watch this show and she's going to be very confused and maybe very upset. confused. <laughs> upset? Yeah, it was a wild time for sitcoms then. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Man. So let's get back to this book. Oh, fine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. And so always Stacey, keeping us on task, yeah, famously. Stacey's best friend, which I have, I'm just now studying the cover. I love this cover. Yeah. I, I, I you know why I asked me like it? Like? Because Christy's on it. They're like dressed no. in rainbow clothes. Mm. Well, that's part of it. That's part of why I like it. Um, no, I like it because it's a, a direct scene from the book. So this is with mm. um, Pete Unusual. and... Yeah, Pete and... Um, Who is he? Pete Hot? The, yeah. And the, the Asian boy, what's the Asian boy's name? Rick Chow. Rick Chow. So yeah, it's Pete wow, and Rick Chow. Wow, it's me. Wow. What? Yeah. I, it's an Asian person on the cover that actually looks Asian. That's kind of unusual. So I was excited. No, I'm just saying you forgot his the only Asian boy's ki- name. Okay. He's only come up like three times in 50 books. <laughs> so get mad at Anna and Martin, not me. Rick Chow is not a major character as of yet. But making their, what were they making? Like molecules? Yeah. Out of, prunes and pretzels like uh one middle school cafeteria serves prunes yeah also they have to make i did you guys know they made the asian kid be good at science wait i'm sorry is this your definition of good at science okay i I he knows what a molecule is esme yeah (laughs) also he makes a complicated tiger parents (laughs) he makes a complicated molecule hang on one he was makes just, H2O. But there was another one that I couldn't pronounce. It's chapter six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It says the boys built prune models of hydrogen peroxide and some sulfur stuff. While Rick was trying to figure out how to make a, I can't pronounce it, trithalolomine, and then in parentheses, Stacey does say, or something like that. So Right. So it may not be made real. Up. But also, it says Rick was trying to figure it out. So doesn't mean that he's good at it. It would have said Rick expertly made a... Rick, As we are all trying Asian-ness. to defend these things in these books. <laughs> yeah. As we's a BSC apologist. Picture. Yeah. <laughs> There could just, be like a there could be a swastika on the cover of this book, and she'd be like, "She's like that's no. not a swastika. It was the '90s. It's an ancient <laughs> druid symbol." Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. Anyway, I love this cover because 
they are doing the thing that they're doing in it. And they look like eighth graders having fun and laughing at the boys doing dumb things. And Lane just looks so bitchy. I, it just makes me really She happy. also looks like she's 32 and yeah. on, like just got divorced or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like she's the substitute teacher that has to hang out with these annoying eighth graders. She got divorced yeah. from, wait, what's her boyfriend's name? King. Which is also the name of the quarterback that like tortures okay, Logan. Yeah. So Micah came home from work yesterday and was like, oh, what's this What's this book about? And I was saying how Lane's boyfriend is king. He's just like, hmm, they've already used that name. Wow, 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 wow. And he was like, Clarence King? <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, okay, the one book you read of the entire yeah. series. We got to hire Micah as a fact checker and yeah. oh my God. series consistency checker. He would love he would that. He love a fan of our, of our podcast. Yeah. Um, that's hilarious. So back to the plot. Sorry. Oh, right. Have we said anything about the plot? No, we haven't. So Lane is on school break for a week and her and Stacy are on the phone and Stacy decides it'd be a great idea for Lane to come use her week off to come visit her in Stony Brook. Even while she's though, in school? Yeah, <laughs> while she's in school still. So Lane comes, and she's just basically too cool for school for everyone. I think everyone's lame and immature and a baby. And she has this weird high school boyfriend named King who has... He is 15. Ooh. He's 15, and he likes to call her babe, which is also gross. Right, and she calls him something weird, too. She calls Doesn't him she call him... King of my oh, heart. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Their, their whole romance was a little gross for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, that's a part of the book. And as the title says, at the end of the book, Stacy decides to break up with Lane as her best friend. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's also, like, some very low-key drama because there's this valentine's dance coming and like mal and ben hobart get in a fight and marianne and logan get in a fight for like five seconds on one page yeah totally i don't get it he's like are you gonna and bart and christy get an argument it's like is everyone gonna ruin the dance okay but bart's like i'm gonna watch a sport on tv instead of going to the game Mm -hmm. that's so stupid yeah is this yeah wait how uh do you feel about this it's broken the bart spell yeah, Bart's canceled. Fuck Bart. Well, so fickle Emily is. Like, that's all it took. One I'm sorry. Misstep. You have to watch a sport on television? Maybe it was I the know. Super Bowl. He, Who cares? He didn't watch it, though. He did go to the game. On the I mean, day I mean, of. The dance. The dance sorry, dance. yeah, yeah. The morning of. I don't know. Yeah, a little weird. A little obsess. It just seems really uncharacteristic, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then, right. Right. Uncharacteristic. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also a whole subplot of them like doing weird heteronormative matchmaking among seven and eight year olds. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, because they throw the Valentine's party. party. Yeah. For all the kids. All right. I think we pretty much covered it. Um, except Ben and Mal's fight was over the card catalog. Yeah. In the library, which is also pretty great. <laughs> I, I feel like I can relate to that, though. I can relate to that fight. <laughs> well, right. Because the stakes are so low. You don't want to concede. Yeah. Wrong. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm fucking right about this. Don't be an asshole. Wow. All right. What? So I, nothing. What? As we what? <laughs> I'm just sometimes reminded that we're different people. That's all. Like I can't. Oh, only sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, only sometimes. Um. Anywho, 
Okay, so there was a lot of stuff in this book that I thought was interesting. So I think I've mentioned on here, but I used to, like my senior thesis was on adolescent friendships and I did a lot of studies in graduate school on adolescent friendships. So this idea of friendship breakups during adolescence and particularly at this time, like through middle school before high school is um, one that's kind of pretty well studied and that I think is really interesting. And that I think probably a lot of our listeners, a lot of people reading this book can relate to because, you know, this is something that the BSC tackles all the time, right? In terms of the growing apart of the Christy, Marianne, Claudia triad from when they were little, you know, early in the books with Claudia stopped mm-hmm. playing with dolls a long time ago, all of those kind of things, right? And which girls are the mature, sophisticated girls and which girls are babyish, right? But they've, but we've seen them sort of bridge the gaps between that along the way. And this is the first time we've seen kind of that fork in the road of sort of what kind of teenager are you going to be affecting mm-hmm. a core relationship. And so I do just kind of broadly, I think this is an important book and something that describes something that happens for a lot of young teens around 11, 12, 13. And mm-hmm. so I think that Anna and Martin did a nice job of that broadly. But I was wondering sort of what we know about, you know, how often friendships sort of fade and kind of grow distant or change in characteristic versus how often there's like a breakup. Like, have you guys mm. had many like friendship breakups or have you more, more had like the fade away? I know Anne and I have not had a breakup, but. Um, I had a lot of friendship yeah. breakups. Yeah. Like right when I moved like to New York mm-hmm. or like friends I made when I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Mm. And honestly, I will say none of them were my fault. Because they all eventually came back to me years later and apologized. Interesting. And they were they were always over some weird voice classic Stacy. Oh, really? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I had like one friendship breakup in middle school. Mm-hmm. But then we were like fine as teenagers. So it mm. wasn't like mm-hmm. a we just you, like broke up as best friends. Yeah. Were you still friends? Or were you just like fine acquaintances? Fine acquaintances, I was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there was no remaining beef. It was just like, this isn't working anymore. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had many friendships like end, though. Mm hmm. I have a lot of like friendships that were really tight at a moment in time that I've not like kept up. But when I see the people, mm-hmm. it's like normal and fine. Yeah. I think we have quite a number of those like from high school and of people that we'd be perfectly good and happy to hang out with, but that we're not like keeping close ties with don't you think i mean sure i wouldn't say i was very close with anyone in high school except for like wow you okay okay good well like except for like (laughs) you and maybe and maybe michelle when she wasn't busy off being popular and cool (laughs) Ooh, is this where we figure out that anna michelle had a breakup no No, we didn't we never had a breakup no does michelle still listen to our podcast probably not consistently Mm-hmm. I, think, I think she binges it occasionally when she's like doing a big day of cleaning kind of thing. Mm. But she usually has little kids around, so it's a little harder. Oh, we're yeah, like, I just realized Fuck that bullshit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Fuck those 13-year-old babysitters. They're bitches. <laughs> yeah. If we describe Michelle's life right now, it would sound very glamorous and fitted with our whole stereotyping of her on this on this that's, podcast. That's As true. Stacey. Ooh, who yeah. did who did Michelle have a friendship breakup with? Does she have a lane? Honestly, I I think in her case she it was similar Anne. to Anne's twenties. Similar to Anne's twenties, <laughs> I think she got dropped by people for no good reason. Um, but I don't think she had any like 
I don't think she was the breaker upper in any, you mm. know, cause the, cause Michelle is Stacy. She's actually very nice. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And to, and so. to clarify, like the boy, like our friendship breakups over a boy, it wasn't like a love triangle. It was mm-hmm. usually like one person was very like in a bad relationship with someone mm-hmm. and it was like toxic. And I might have maybe pointed out that it was, mm-hmm. And then yeah. they got very angry mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And then years later, they'd be like, oh, like, I'm really sorry. You were just trying yeah. to help <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, when you're 23, yeah. it's, you know. No one wants to hear that. Nobody no loves one wants you. to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. Um. <laughs> Damn it. Now that song is stuck in my head. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Do it, Emily. Do it. No. Do it. You can do it. No. I'll be with you. Okay. Sing it together. <laughs> Anne always wants one of us or both of us to sing. You I like sing when Anne sings. I like, yeah, you sing it, Annie. No. <laughs> this podcast is very interesting. It's been 19 minutes and we've not talked uh, about anything. Right. So, Hardell, Lorson, and Sellison, 2015, they did um, a survival analysis of adolescent friendships they started in seventh grade um so there's this thing called sociometrics where you you give kids in a middle school a list of all of the students in the school and you say like who's your friends who do you like who gets in trouble who's a leader who's like who stops talking to people when they get mad and you like gather information on the people and then if they reciprocally nominated each other then it counts as a friendship right so it's not you don't ask like emily are you friends with Anne? like you guys have to both secretly nominate each other and then they can find that dyad so they found all of these seventh graders and they want to look at like, what are the characteristics that make a friendship survive? And is it the individual characteristics? Like are kids who do better in school more likely to retain friendships? Are kids who get in trouble more often more likely to retain friendships with the other ne'er-do-wells? Um, or is it, does it have to do with the combination in the dyad? Um, and mm. so what do you, and then the survival analysis, like usually a survival analysis in, is in like medical literature, right? It's like literally like th- these 500 people. Who doesn't die? Yeah. Who, yeah. how long do people last after this intervention? But this is like, how long does the friendship last? So what do you guys think for things like relational aggression, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast, physical aggression, scholastic achievement, um, you know, positive po- popularity, which is defined here as like positive views based on the other mm-hmm. other people in the student body. Like what things do you think might be relevant to the lasting of friendships? I don't know. I don't think dum-dums and smarties stay together very long. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> Anne? Wow. <laughs> Anne, Anne made a very shocked face when Emily said that. <laughs> um, but you're like, so like dumb, like on paper dumb? Yeah, yes, this is not, this is, well, it's actually, it's kids' opinions of who does well in school, which across Mm -hmm. a whole middle school are fairly accurate, right? It's not, it's not like one kid's opinion, but like the average popularity would Mm -hmm. be one, a big Mm -hmm. one, because that encompasses a lot of different things. mm -hmm. Like who, like, and when you're, you know, younger or a teenager, popularity is basically like you're like attractive mm-hmm. and that's about it i feel so you think that it would relate to lasting friendships oh sorry i thought even the opposite 
No, okay. So you think popularity would would be inversely related? Would yes. be a re- reverse correlation. Like the more yes. popular you are, the fewer lasting friendships you have. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, um, no. Uh, so <laughs> what what's actually really interesting is that you're wrong. To, yeah. But uh, Emily's <laughs> Am I wrong? right. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the, what is more important than anyone's individual characteristics is the the dyad difference score is what they talk about. So basically, how similar are friends. And the more mm. similar you are across different characteristics, the more likely you'll remain friends, which is sort of sad, um, except that these are not um, their similarities other than gender are not things like race or socioeconomic class. Um, but it's really you could kind of think of these things as sort of proxies for values, right? Like if kids are working really hard in school, if kids are you know, more social, if kids are more troublemakery, they have longer friendships with other troublemakery friends, right? Like those are, can also last. It's just like, Mm -hmm. how good are you at making connections with people that are similar to you in these ways? This is why the breakfast club is so appealing. Mm -hmm. Bunch of misfits who have nothing in common Mm -hmm. become friends. What? Yeah. Right. Not going to last. Survival analysis on the breakfast club, very low. (laughs) I mean, they leave detention and they don't look back, you know? It's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like- so, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. There'd been some previous work looking at individual characteristics and thinking that that relates to friendships. But that makes sense, right? Because everybody has, you know, pretty much everybody has some friends, like regardless of your station in life. And, and you're more likely to keep them and they're more likely to be long lasting if you're more similar um, in those kind of core ways to the people that you're friends with. The other study I looked at was from uh, Bowker in 2010. Um, that the fancy psychologist word for breakup is disillusion. Um, often they they use that for marriage dissolution and relationship dissolution, but also friendship dissolution. And the, and she looked at the difference between friendship downgrades, which is I think kind of what you were describing, Emily, with your middle school friend, where you were like no longer best friends, but like you could like you might chat together in class or like see each other mm-hmm. at a game or whatever, versus complete disillusions where you like don't talk to the person anymore at all. And they measured emotional responses to both of them. And downgrades are much, much more common than complete dissolution. Mm -hmm. And girls are more likely than boys to report both types. So which I think makes a lot of sense, particularly in middle school. Well, some people might say throughout the lifespan, boys are a little bit less discerning about the type of emotional connection in their relationships. So it, but certainly in middle school, it's like, do you want to watch that game on the television with me instead of going to the dance with Christy? Great. We're friends, you know? So girls are more likely to report both types and all adolescents report more sadness than anger about both of them. So I think we have this, Mm. sometimes we have this cultural idea of teenagers as being really like just kind of mad and tantrumy, but it's a sad thing. And it's, I, I, I think this book really captured nicely the sadness of it and kind of Stacy thinking about the years that she and Lane had put in and the connection that they had over that time, mm-hmm. but also thinking about the ways Lane hadn't been there for her and trying to sort of reconcile those. So it seemed, it seemed very realistic to me and in line with the literature. Yeah. I had two friends that I was tight with who had a friendship breakup as teenagers and it was pretty rough. Yeah. Pretty rough. Very sad. Well, it's interesting too, the the sadness, right? Like when both parties are sad, but not sad enough, like mm-hmm. the thing isn't salvageable. It's kind of an mm-hmm. interesting dynamic. Well, when one of them is a dum-dum and one of them is a smarty, it's just really hard to keep things going. It's really hard to keep mm-hmm. things going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, is it though? Okay. So if someone's a dum-dum 
when someone's a smarty, but they have a lot of other things in common. Right. Then that's right. fine. Yeah. It's not that you have to have everything in common. I was mm-hmm. just taking the opportunity to roast Emily a little bit for using those phrases. <laughs> well, and I also think, you know, there's an underlying value, you know, thinking about the way academic achievement was rated in that particular study, right? It, they, we really have no way of knowing, you know, sort of underlying IQ or like raw intellectual ability, right? It's like, who's working hard in school? And so mm-hmm. you could have somebody that is, you know, school's really important to them and they're, they're friends with somebody else where school's really important to them. We're not really talking about intelligence, but that's like a value that's common that would help them remain right. friends. All right. My only other thing is Stacy says the fantastic, my mother is the reason I do not have much of a self-confidence problem on page 28, which just seemed to me a very like McGill family sentence. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's so funny. And also, of course, reinforces tons of really bad armchair psychology about how everything comes down to moms and what they do to their children and um, gives Maureen a lot of credit that I don't think that she deserves in the same way that she would not deserve blame if Stacy was not very confident. So I, I I started to do like half a literature search on this and I got so overwhelmed. I was like, no, I'm just going to talk about what I think about it. So, so of course, you know, moms have some influence, but uh, self-confidence is built through mastery and you can't just make your kid confident by telling them that they're awesome, especially if you're just their mom. So, but I sort of, you know, it's kind of cute that Stacy gives her that credit. What's up, Em? Yes. What did you notice? Well, it's kind of interesting that this book follows on the heels of the super special about snow because there's a lot of climate change talk in it too. But I was like, oh, we already talked about that. And we've already talked about a lot of stuff in this book, like about the romantic dynamics and blah, 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 blah. So there's like one throwaway comment. I'm really pulling things from the bottom of the barrel here, but one right. comment that Christy makes that I was like, ooh, this is something we have not talked about yet. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to land for a, an audience of people who are obsessed with the Babysitter's Club just by virtue of the nature of the critique. But we'll, we'll, let's see what happens. I'm going to throw a queer theory argument at you guys in response to something Christy says and see what you make of it. <laughs> awesome. Okay. I don't know what page this is on because I was reading on the Kindle, but at some point, Christy's I don't know. I guess they're probably planning the party and Lane's probably being cunty about it. And Christy goes like, it's for the children. Like the children are our future or something like that. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, I don't, but I believe you. Okay. So I was thinking about how there's this argument in queer theory that is sort of part of a longer discourse around futurity, right? And so like one dynamic of a kind of hetero, you know, normative society is that like all the kind of conversations around future are oriented around reproduction, right? The the notion of generation and regeneration of the kind of species and the child as this kind of like figure of innocence and like hope hope yeah for like you know whatever radical political horizon or anything and so you know there's a lot of like queer theory critiques of like a gay politics that's centered around gay marriage for example right that like if all you're doing is saying like hey we deserve the same rights as straight people look at how normal we can be look we can have normal families like let us have the state sanctioned benefits that come with 
you know, um, a legally recognized marriage, we're just like you, right? That's not that radical of a claim, right? It doesn't like drastically change the structure of like how folks relate to one another or like the kind of violence of that, the normative force, right? The, of like what you risk if you transgress the, these these norms. And so I was thinking about this book that this theorist Lee Edelman wrote um, called No Future, where he basically argued kind of like against the figure of the child as a, a sort of center of radical politics. And he does like a kind of really cool sort of literary um, theorization. But like he argues that kind of queer gets positioned as sort of antithetical to this figure of generation regeneration kind of reproductive politics and rendered as kind of like narcissistic, antisocial and kind of future negating. And he makes this claim that like, actually that's where the radical potential is and that queer theory should, instead of resisting queerness, the association of queerness with these, you know, narcissistic, antisocial and future negating drives, it should instead kind of embrace it as a way to reorient the kind of radical sort of edge of, of, politics so i was like it's funny that christy says that right she's just like the children are our future Mm -hmm. and i think but also like i don't know how how like fair or interesting of a critique it is of a book about children babysitting other children to be like it's uh you know overly obsessed with this the like repro reproductive futurity (laughs) and like the heteronormative values sort of encapsulated by the figure of the child as this like quintessential kind of innocent an innocent figure in need of protection but i do i'm really sympathetic to that critique of that representation of childhood right that there's something kind of like separate from childhood that childhood is this like period of life or mode of being that's distinct from reality or society or mm-hmm. something like that. And I think that's a really kind of mistaken way to conceptualize childhood and probably in part leads to a lot of like the misconceptions that you, you're you often talking about around like what kids are really like and mm-hmm. like what are the dynamics that really shape their experiences of like maturing into adults that will then, you know, have a more robust hand in shaping the world and that kind of thing. So right. I, I was wondering what what you guys make of this like criticism of kind of like the child as the the center of a politics that's about oriented toward the future and like what what do like do we think the Babysitters Club kind of like overly I idealizes like ch- childhood and do, do, does it commit the kind of sin of representing children as these like uniquely kind of innocent beings in need of protection from from the world or something like that? Well. I mean, it's, there's too much babysitting. Too much babysitting. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that the books in general come off like that because it's not like, especially in the Babysitters Club universe. I don't know as as a middle aged person now, knowing that they live in this like upper middle class white suburban town. It's like you have to take everything with a grain of salt, right? In general, yeah. I do think the idea of the children are our future and hope is like true, technically, like right, sure. like quantitatively accurate. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe, but it's but like also it, not really that interesting, and it doesn't really yeah. do much work on its own, which I think is well. It's just like part of the I critique, mean, right? How long have how long has society been saying that? And like, well, actually, not that long. Not that long. Childhood. <laughs> like in the way we conceive of it is a relatively new invention. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. 
Yeah. But I do, it's an interesting kind of, it like comes with a whole host of other political attachments, I think, which is like what the queer criticism is, right? That like queerness has often been seen as like a threat to childhood in two senses, right? That like not engaging in heteronormative reproductive activity means like we're not reproducing, right? We're not generating new new citizens, right? Capable mm-hmm. of whatever, contributing to the economy or, you know, <laughs> in the, the nationalist project, right? In some mm-hmm. cases, but also various kind of sexual perversions have often been amassed under the heading of like queerness. And one of those things that's, you know, criminalized is like pedophilia, right? So that like, hom- uh, that like homosexual practices are listed in the same breath as like pedophilia is part mm-hmm. of what what has been the the task of kind of rendering queerness or gayness um, abject and like and, illegal and, and, <laughs> and dangerous, right? Yeah, it's and dangerous. This very yeah. cl- this cl- evilly clever thing of yes. of circling up around totally benign practices between consenting adults and and linking them with mm-hmm. things that are dangerous to children and are mm-hmm. not okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's it's really interesting. I love that you brought this up and I love it was from Christy being stuck and just offering a cliche to Lane when she was being a bee. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm going to agree with Anne. I don't like, of course. Yeah. I mean, we could do a lot of criticizing of Stony Brook and the, the whole, as we know, the whole series is centered around reproductive labor and the value of children, but I don't think it sets children up as innocence because I think we get a lot of the inner lives of the kids in Stony yeah. Brook. And I think why I related to it as a kid who was interested in kids and who, as an adult who still works with kids is because it was more in the vein of like Beverly Cleary of children are awesome and funny, but not mm-hmm. they're innocent. You know, Ramona right. was this huge revolution because she wasn't just like, yes, teacher. And like being mm-hmm. an innocent little girl, mm-hmm. she like squirted out all the toothpaste and like pulled Susan's hair and, you know, did all these other things. And I think that are you crying? This is, yeah, totally. Um, and I think that this is, we lost her this year. But I, I think know. that um, Anna Martin is in that vein, right, of portraying kids as they actually are. Yeah. Which is why I like it so much. So I don't, like, obviously the the core tenet is that kids have to be protected in some way because that's why they need babysitters, right? The, right, the, right. The, the pikes just aren't leaving all the eight of them at home by themselves. And I think that's more of a, you know, then we're getting into kind of a silly level of analysis because that's just like a convention in the United States that children have to be watched when their parents aren't home. And like, yeah. So of course the babysitters club is going to represent that. Like, I don't think it's a political act to represent that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but like they do, they are multidimensional and they do have conflicts and they do like, it's not like their world is this kind of like separate space from the adult world or like Mm -hmm. the real world, they're Mm -hmm. kind of part of it and learning how to navigate it, which I think is, you know, a a work in part works against that kind of like, yeah. Encapsulation of the child as this. Yeah. If you read older children's literature, like I was reading a a Bobsy twins book to Keely a a while ago, just because we found one at grandma's house. Right. And Mm -hmm. we were looking at it and like Freddie and Flossie, the younger Bobsy twins, like are, they are just cute. That is what they're mm-hmm. like. They're innocent little blonde curls. And they just say like, can't we go skating? Like that's mm-hmm. like, that's mm-hmm. their whole personality. Like there's not a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those really reify these things that you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. 
in a different way, which makes sense because a lot of those came out not too long after this concept of childhood and and those the need to protect innocence in that way. Like, and what do you think of, I think I must have clicked on some like momfluencer on my Instagram feed because now I'm getting <laughs> fed all this crazy like mom stuff or like True. momfluencers. And right. I'm <laughs> yeah, but it's like I mean that's when you when we were you were talking about like defining childhood and like what is that? It's just like I mean social media. It's like I see there's such a weird like parents who are dictating the narrative of their kids on social media, which is I'm and curious. It's so curated, right? There's like a single yeah. color palette and like and yeah. I'm kind of like huh, like how are these kids going to turn? Like what are they going to become? Because like you've been defined. Which of these as, kids are going to be the biggest bitches? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, you know, their lives have been defined in a certain way by their mm-hmm. parent. And then when does that, What and then like when they're whatever, 12, and they start to see like their life documented. And it's like, this isn't what I like at all. This isn't who yeah. I am at all. Like what's going to mm-hmm. happen? Yeah. That's really interesting. Right? It's... Mm-hmm. Right, that there's this like romanticized notion of what an idyllic childhood looks like, and parents are curating mm-hmm. that aesthetic as part of their brand. There's yeah. also a lot of like mom humor, which is like it's like they're like taking the piss out of themselves, but in a really like cringy way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think It'll that be, it's has like, always existed. Like that goes back to Irma Bombeck and other mm-hmm. like columnists in the Saturday Evening Post before her. But I think it's it feels more immediate and intimate and and a little bit upsetting because it's in this like in an Instagram reel or a TikTok versus written down and edited. Well, and I think too to maybe your point that like what the series does and why it's good is that it doesn't paint childhood with this like overly idyllic brush, right? The kids deal with adversity they struggle with you know like how to navigate racism they struggle with disease right so it's like gives you an angle into not recoiling from mm-hmm. the the reality of not of a, of a childhood that's not perfectly idyllic right mm-hmm. um and instead of treating that as like an aberration and hiding from it, it's like actually the norm, right? That like mm-hmm. it's more you, there's a lot of adversity. Not all not every single second of childhood is this like innocent, idyllic moment of like perfection that that you then ruin, you know, that right. then gets tarnished with your ascent into adulthood or something like that. Right. Very um, Winkle with matching cupcakes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a great podcast called under the influence about um momfluencers that's um Mm. pretty pretty good that i would recommend great plug i feel like you're doing such a good job lately of plugging other podcasts it's very very pro very pro move Mm -hmm. Uh, do you listen to podcasts (laughs) (laughs) everyone plug our podcast um okay yeah that's all i was just thinking about queer theory and the death drive and the figure of the child so awesome We'll put Lee Edelman's book up on our bookshop, everybody. Great. And help. <laughs> <laughs> so there are like little, there are some nuggets of pop culture stuff, but I was very interested in uh, like Lane and her boyfriend, King. <laughs> and the way they described Lane and King, I was like, this is interesting because I feel like Lane is presented as being this very like sophisticated Manhattan girl who has very wealthy parents. She lives in Dakota, right? And, you know, I think 
so far the series has led us to believe that she's like very um maybe like very like gossip girly right like Mm. but from this book i was like wait i feel like she's getting to be a little bit more like more like too cool for school type of Mm -hmm. type of teen like Mm -hmm. not not like like she listens to underground music and because like she was dressed all in black with like Mm -hmm black pants with lace trim and like she sounded she started to sound a little bit more alternative to me you don't think she's gonna be a 15 year old sitting at the bar of a hotel drinking martinis i think she's gonna be hanging out with like nyu students like Mm. who are in art school and going to like loft parties and like art gallery openings Mm. she's not trying to go to yale Mm -hmm. no and like and then that was also reinforced by her boyfriend's description who kind of had like purple dyed hair that he mm-hmm. like spiked up and he also sounded very kind of arty and like cool mm-hmm. so then think he lives in a loft in williamsburg with his musician dad possibly oh like like what's his name in gossip girl Dan Humphrey. <laughs> like, Dan Dan Humphrey. Humphrey. oh sorry this is patron only content <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i was like oh that's interesting and then i was thinking about this is 1992 now and mm-hmm. how we are really getting into the alternative rock era. Totally. And how perhaps their descriptions were kind of influenced by what was happening in culture. Mm-hmm. Did, did Who is the writer on this book? I, I think Do it's Anna know? Martin. It's Anna Martin. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, so they were talking a lot about like tapes and like how Stacy wanted to have, she removed all her kid tapes and mm-hmm. pushed her coolest, newest tapes to the front and Mm -hmm. like i was like okay well what was going on at that time in late 91 and early 92 and it was a lot of like alternative stuff was starting to come out oh for sure and i was like oh like you know like loveless came out which isn't really grunge but you know Mm -hmm. and um green day kerplunk came out lane's not listening to kerplunk on the east coast though they're still on look no but i'm just saying that culturally this was like kind of like the shift that was happening yeah well and and nevermind had already taken over the world in 92 yeah didn't nevermind come out in 91 Mm, i was in eighth grade damn you're old yeah Yeah. september 91 and like challenge me on nirvana (laughs) no because i remember our band teacher making uh our friend will try to tell him what kurt cobain was actually saying it smells like teen spirit and then like lush and like afghan wigs and like there was just a bunch of we were like moving into fully mm-hmm. into that territory so it was interesting how i was like oh i don't think that lane is that prim and proper Mm-mm. i see her more starting she's like about to go to a party and smoke a joint mm-hmm. and in a couple of years do some like acid or something mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think that's that's in my head. I was like, that was the path she was going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Uncle Alex got Matt Nevermind on vinyl a few years ago for Christmas. And when we put it on recently, I was like, all of these songs are on the same album. Right. It's bananas. It was incredible, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It like, was incredible. Just every single song is a banger. Yes. <laughs> like, one I mean, half of the other. That's when people had to put out albums. Yes. And they exactly. had to have you had to, like, you had to put they had to out. have like ten good songs in an album. Yeah. Yeah. And they had to be in the right order. They mm-hmm. had to be in the right order. I know. I, I had never mind on cassette tape. Yep. Yeah, anyway, so I thought that was interesting. I also thought 
when they were describing Carolyn and Marilyn, mm-hmm. I was like, this is very like parent trappy. <laughs> right? Like how one's like, she likes to dress in plaid skirts and mm-hmm. like her hair is long and the other one's trendy and she wears her hair short and blah, blah, The blah, never blah. ending influence of the parent trap on the babysitter's club. Yeah. And then they get, they get excited over watching To Kill a Mockingbird and that's like what ended. Oh my God. That's what ended their arguing. All right. Yes, the universally loved <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird that like, solves all of our like interpersonal crises. That, that is not a slumber party movie. It's so funny. I there were two things in that chapter that really got me. Yeah, I well Lane was Lane was listening had a, a retro poster. Is that the name of the singing group that she had up? Yeah, I was retro. wondering like, who the hell that would be. Yeah, they literally said, "All right." When To Kill a Mockingbird was on. I was like, there's no way. Is that just because Lane's sophisticated? That's very silly. I don't know. I, I was no. like, why? I, that's just very Anna Martin. Um, very Anna Martin. Like, but like oh, retro, for some funny. reason, retro to me was very like, like it, it, uh, for some reason, the like Blondie came into my head. Like how sense. like mm. it was like, that was like the band, like just fashion wise. And also mm-hmm. just like, it's very New York and cool. Like I was like, oh, maybe that it started to, make this like narrative ahead about where she was going in life. Yeah, but. that makes sense. I thought of Berlin, but I think that's mm. only because retro rhymes with metro. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Riding on the metro. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, I sang after all. I just didn't sing What's My Age Again. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> well, guess what song's in my head now? Heart of Glass? No. It was from a, it's from a conversation we were having like 25 minutes ago. I can't guess. I don't remember. (laughs) Something in the way. Which one's that? No. Nice try. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a song from uh, Breakfast Club. Oh. It's been in my head since we were talking about that. Okay, carry on. Are you going to sing it? Uh, 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 Hey. (laughs) As we sang twice. (laughs) Um, I also like Pete Black's poetic language to to Lane. Oh, my God. Those are in my best lines. I yeah, know. I so liked it, the second. The se- what's the second one he says? Well, like eyes like limpid pools. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know what's funny? So I like looked that up, and it's it's like a phrase that has been used a lot in mm-hmm. poetry and writing. Yeah. But the first thing that came up was like one of the first searches that came up were things that Pepe Le Pew says. <laughs> Oh yeah. my god, that's that so funny. Thing. I was like, why did I know that from childhood? I don't think it was just this book. Yes, it's totally Pepe Le Pew. But I yeah. guess that uh, the term or the to, to like describe someone's beauty with like natural things is like mm. called a Belzon or something. And it oh. says like Pepe Le Pew uses Belzons a, a lot in his. Oh, well, so does Bart Taylor comparing Christie to a snow capped mountain. Oh, yes. <laughs> I still don't. What does that mean? <laughs> I still don't understand what that means. Very triangular. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right on top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so funny. I I also loved in that same chapter when Lane says that Christy, when Lane says that King is 15, Christy says, can he drive? And Lane says, no. And then she says, vote. <laughs> Lane says, no. And then Christy says, then what's the point? And, and then Stacy cuts her off. Yeah, so funny. Christy's the only reason that you might want to date an older boy is if they have these like a- additional privileges that might you might leverage your power through. Yeah, <laughs> like, can so he good. even buy alcohol? Yeah. <laughs> can he run for president? This is unreasonable. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, that's about that's about it all I had. Oh, also, I like the the home shopping network. Oh yeah, so good. It's all yours. Yeah, it's um, all yours. I know. I can picture and, but, it. But she bought like a clown doll. I'm very confused about that. I know. So I, I know. tried to look up if clown dolls were like really popular at one point, and I did find an article about how just dolls in general were super popular on Home Shopping Network. Well, I know, I think I know the kind she's talking about and you would see it in like various old ladies' houses with like the ceramic hands and face. Yeah, but would you buy that when you're 13? I don't know, apparently. And you're like (laughs) Claudia and Stacy, who are apparently the most fashionable (laughs) members of the BSC. It's weird. It's a weird. I want a clown doll. (laughs) I know. Um, Have, have Have you ever bought anything from no, TVC. but UCSD TV had a like 24 hour, like basically QVC channel. So people in the dorms would like get really stoned and just spend hours like watching the home shopping network. <laughs> it was like the era of shake weights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a lot of weird stuff on there, <laughs> but I don't know anyone who ever bought anything. It was just like a source of entertainment. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys want to guess how much? Okay. So QVC bought home shopping network. Okay. Some years ago, so but how much money do you think QVC made in 2021? A billion dollars. Yeah. You, you want to say a billion also as me, or want to uh, change your number? I mean, I was going to say millions. So uh-huh. it's just ten well, million. <laughs> it's eleven point three five billion US dollars. <laughs> Emily's face. <laughs> <laughs> That is That's the most shock I've ever seen, ever seen on the contest. That's so many billions. <laughs> I know. It's very popular yeah. still. I've never been more shocked about anything. <laughs> 11 yeah. billion dollars? Yeah. Oh, kill me. Uh, I oh worked for a, a beauty brand whose founder goes on QVC. And sells her stuff, and she was like, "Yeah, that's how I make basically like eighty percent of our our company revenue is by going on QVC." Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of it's interesting that so many people still like the internet. Like, internet exists now, people, and you can buy QVC stuff online too. But it's like you know. People like seeing people be on TV hawking their own goods. Yeah, my old roommate used to watch Shark Tank a lot. Oh, I like Shark Tank. <laughs> All right, Anne, was there any candy in this book? There is no candy. I just saw Fritos. Okay. Which, whenever they talk about Fritos, I'm like, I need to buy Fritos because they're really good. They're really good. I had some really recently. Good. They were Ugh. quite good. They hold up. All they're right. Um, tallies. I haven't done like full tallies in a while across the series. So I thought I would do that today because it's been a little bit. So we're up to 28 on babyish, 61 on bossy, 60 on sophisticated, gaining on bossy, um, 54 shy, 37 sensitive. Unfortunately, exotic and almond shaped both come back in this book. So 19 exotic, 28 almond shaped, 40 individual, and 38 health food. Mallory is practical just 11 times. And we did get a Jesse tells jokes more recently, but that's still only at four. Wow. I still hate that that is Jesse's thing. Yeah. Well, we got nothing else other than Jesse being black. But if we added a total for that, it would be like 100. She's also, you know, a dancer. 
Right, but a, a dancer is not a personality characteristic. Didn't Stacy describe her skin color not say she's black in this one? Yes, that's true. We're seeing that mm-hmm. more often. Yeah. Jesse has beautiful cocoa-colored skin. Speaking yeah. of personality, uh, Pete... The sneakers? Pete always wears sneakers. I knew you were going to say that! <laughs> I wrote it down with a little heart in my notes. <laughs> I loved that touch, and I love that they didn't notice, and that Lane was, like, upset about it. I loved it. Loved it, loved it. We, maybe we should post our graduation photo on, on um, Patreon or Instagram, man. Just FYI, as me all for his converse. That's yeah. why that's funny. Yeah. It's part of her personality. It is part yeah. of my personality. Yeah. I love Pete Black. Cool. All right. What weirdest lines did you guys have? I like limpid pools. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I like limpid pools, but I wrote down when Christy said... It's not an omen. It's boys. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's, kind of, it's too long, but I, I uh, liked it. I also had, um, rather than him, limpid pools, I had hair like gossamer. Um, mm-hmm. And then I also, I had a few this time. I thought there were a lot of good ones, which is usually the, the tell that it's an Anna Martin book. Um, mm-hmm. Ever subtle, which I think is Stacy describing Christy. Um, mm. But then also I liked way beyond pigs. Um, which was Stacy. This yeah. is a book oh, yeah. where we learned that Stacy collects pigs, which Anne also collected, I collected pigs, pigs for many years, yeah. and and that she was like hiding some of her pigs when Lane was coming because she thought Lane was going to judge her and that she should so, be way, way beyond pigs. This has never been brought up before that she likes pigs. She does do Porky Pig impression. Yeah, this is this is the. I think it's going to keep coming up, but this is the first we're learning of it in this book. I feel like Way Beyond Pigs is a very appropriate title to pair Excellent. with the ex-best friend yeah. phenomena. Cool. All right. Great. What should we pizza toast to? We shouldn't pizza toast to him, but this is the first mention of my long-lost relative, Curtis Schaller, who Jesse goes to the dance with. Saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot that Schaller is in here. Funny. I'm only coming up with sincere ones, which we don't have to do, but I, I, I like that Stacy, you know... There's a lot of indicators earlier in the book that she is doing things like hiding her pigs and rearranging her tapes and that that's not what you should have to do when your best friend is coming over and they should be fine with your pigs and your dorky tapes. So I think like Stacy's coming into her own and not trying to like satisfy Lane is what I would nominate, but there might be a better, funnier pizza toast. And yeah, I don't know. Trying to think of something to make fun of. (laughs) Oh, I also like how she almost lied and said she was reading the Joy Luck Club. Oh, yeah. That was pretty funny. I laughed at that for sure. Which I think I read in eighth grade. I think that was on our summer reading list before we went into high yeah. school. It's a good yeah. book. It is a good book. Yeah. Should we, we pizza funny. toast to, the to, Joy Luck. to Amy Tan? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. And, and what about Amy Tan and Rick Chow? Okay. Great. <laughs> A pizza okay. toast to Amy Tan and Rick Chow. Where's Amy, Amy Tan and Rick Chow? This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. <laughs> Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook. Or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuckinstonybrook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. <laughs>